you very, very much, Hermione, for a very generous introduction. Uh, you haven't seen the last of Hermione in this um, lecture because she has very kindly agreed to do the Shakespearean readings. This is principally because she is a very good actress, whom I saw when I was a um, student here at, at Oxford, um, and also because I haven't got much voice. <laughs> also, oh, and technically also we um, couldn't actually get some of the... Um, uh, various clips and DVDs and so forth to play for some reason. So you will see David Tennant, who's up there at the moment, um, towards the middle of the talk, after you have heard Hermione do some Shakespeare. My title echoes famous lines from Wilfred Owen, um, and in, in part are an acknowledgement of John Stallworthy's great work on Wilfred Owen when he asked me to give this lecture. Wilfred Owen wrote in Strange Meeting a poem about seeing your enemy face to face and knowing him for a friend. And Owen says that his theme is the truth untold, the pity of war, the pity war distilled. So in this talk on the uses of war, I want to explore the poetry and the pity in relation to Greek tragedy with a particular focus on heroines, most particularly Hecuba. The phrase uses of does not equal usefulness. The, t the term uses does not predominantly imply value, but purpose, teleologies. However, the eminent classicist G.W. Bowsock, writing in the recent issue of the New York Review of Books, comments almost casually in the course of a review, as if the matter was undisputed, warfare was the fountainhead of Greek literature and culture. It doesn't follow from this that one of war's purposes is to generate such literature and culture but rather that Homeric and Tragedians' reflections on war in the origins and foundations of Western culture reveal first the principle of ethical inquiry at the center of art, and second, the historical fact of dissent and critique expressed by art's existence. I want to explore in what sense the Aristotelian principle of catharsis, exciting pity and fear through mimesis of tragic events, is still valuable. In what ways does it still happen? And if it does so, does it remain an effective justification for horrific and violent representations? Does catharsis still apply in contemporary culture of the spectacle, and the spectacle of war in particular? Blake promised, but vain the sword and vain the bow. They can never work war's overthrow. The hermit's prayer and widow's tear alone can save the world from fear. For a tear is an intellectual thing. I believe with the romantics that imagination can act as a moral tool and that its direct action on sensations and passions can be directed towards the ideal consequences of sympathy, of enlarging our moral compass, and in Heaney's phrase, of being forwarded within ourselves. A strong, renewed philosophical emphasis found in the work of Richard Rorty and Martha Nussbaum links affects, sensations, and ethics more tightly than has found approval among post-romantic analytic thinkers on the whole who are dedicated to rational dispassion. The tear could not be an intellectual thing for a long time. But now the new thinking about the ethical dynamics of emotions has deepened discussions of representations and their moral effects. Greek tragedy has regained extraordinary influence and popularity in my view because it offers an alternative approach to violence from the photographic media of our time, and so gives audiences the possibility of experiencing the emotions stirred by mimesis without becoming part of the violence. I attribute this change, this strong return to tragedy, as a counterweight to the rise of apocalypse today over tragedy. Revenge occupies the core of both tragedy and apocalypse, but the forms it takes in both differ and can be contrasted strongly with one another. There won't be time, of course, to develop a full account of the rise of sacrificial vengeance in our time as a current principle of war, but I'll sketch in some approaches to the crucial difference between the tragic and the apocalyptic. Today, the relationship between dramatic mimesis and empathy has been altered by the new technologies and mass communications. The uses of photographs and films of suffering people have changed with the private exchanges of the internet and global newscasts. Since the war photography that Susan Sontag praises in her last essay, the relationship of representations to the pain of others 
has been denatured. The basic dynamic that will flood us with subjective power of feeling has been turned from its course by violent apocalyptic spectacle, another way of talking about the swallowing up of persons in systems and ideologies. Civil forms of resistance to the violence of war can take social forms on the ground, as in peace movements and campaigns and non-cooperation and disobedience. But alternative acts of mimesis can, can play a primary role Sorry, but alternative acts of mimesis can play a primary role in these acts of dissent and rebellion. The Greek tragedians and their audiences responded to the atrocities committed by their armies and rulers by meditating on the war against the Persians, as in Aeschylus' impassioned drama of the defeated in the play called the Persians, and on the mass, recent massacres um, in, in, um, brought, perpetrated by the Athenians, um, reflected, refracted through the Greeks' mythic war with Troy in a series of tragedies by Euripides, such as Hecuba and the Trojan women. The figure of Hecuba, queen of the destroyed city of Troy, comes to embody a whole system of relation and connection with those human things Wallace Stevens speaks of when he writes, to speak humanly from the height or from the depth of human things, that is acutest speech. Paul Ricoeur has commented that implausible fables test the social structure in which they are circulating. The matter of Troy recognizably probes war and the pity of war as historical event with immaterial consequences. But the Homeric myths, epics, are also myths packed with the deeds of the gods and goddesses, with wonders and miracles. And these elements of fantasy open up the ethical terrain to speculation at a level of abstract theory which does not need to consult the archaeological record to support its arguments. The myth of the Trojan War continues to inspire retellings which play back and forth between the figures in the dramas or other works and their audience, provoking us to examine and reformulate our common stock of values. Troy occupied the Greek audience of tragedy and comedy to the point of obsession. They wanted to recapitulate that ancient victory again and again but they frame it in terms of defeat. Few of the Greeks emerge gloriously or make it home safely, and the plays meditate on the defeated, empathize with the Trojans, and in a play like Hecuba, on the meaning of such loss. Women in the Greeks on the Greek tragic stage occupy the private sphere, charted into the th- in the theatre onto the architectural layout of the scenery. Women issue onto the stage from the inner precincts of the palaces, where they live or are confined, whether they are Greeks or Trojans or Colchians like Medea. Their position in the plays symbolizes, rather than realistically evokes, female customs or behavior. Women could take part in fighting and did so, Thucydides reports. And Edith Hall reminded us in a fine program essay she wrote for the Royal Shakespeare Company production of Hecuba a few years ago. Euripides' heroines may be sequestered females, but they are capable of atrocious violence. Hecuba musters the other captive women to work horrendous vengeance, as does Medea when she murders her children. But such female personae, performed in masks by male actors, body forth in Euripides the zone of civil and personal investments and loves and and loyalties, and can show the tearing apart of this essential fabric of culture and civilization. Theirs is projected as a domestic zone, where family ties and emotional expectations should be safeguarded. But it is not simply domestic. It is also fundamentally civil. Civil society depends on the safeguarding of those areas of experience and their ultimate survival. In Hecuba, Priam is not seen. The queen of Troy, the queen is Troy, and what has annihilated the city in all its fine culture and wealth stands embodied in her, a living palladium. The body, her body, and the bodies of her daughters and the Trojan women are seized and occupied, reproducing their sexual bondage and the city's ruin. The queen also embodies a human counterpart, an avatar of the goddess whom they worshipped as their protectress, Athena. Hecuba is also the mother of the throng of Trojan princes and princesses, who include Hector, the champion of Troy, whom Achilles kills and desecrates, Paris, the lover of Helen, who abducted her from Sparta, where she was married to its king, Menelaus, and Cassandra, who has been gifted by Apollo with the power of seeing the future, but cursed never to be believed. Hecuba loses everyone. Troy is sacked and burned, her husband butchered by Achilles' son Pyrrhus, and all her sons killed. She and all the women of Troy are taken captive and enslaved to the Greeks. Cassandra falls to Agamemnon as a concubine, 
and Hecuba is picked by Odysseus and bound for Ithaca to be a slave in his household. But at the heart of Hecuba's sufferings, both in Euripides' plays and in Seneca's later play, Troades, lies the death of her youngest daughter, Polyxena, who is sacrificed on the grave of Achilles by the Greeks as their last ritual before leaving Troy. The hero's ghost, arrayed in his golden armor, has appeared to the Greeks, we hear at the start of the play, indignant and thirsty for a blood offering to his shade before the navy departs for home and leaves him in his tomb on Trojan soil. He has demanded a prize of honor given to his tomb. After much debating whether the choice should fall on Cassandra or on one of the, other war- or one of the warriors, Odysseus and no other, her own future owner and master, uses his famed powers of persuasion to urge the suitability of Polyxena as Achilles' bride in death. Just as Medea has become an arena for feminist thought, Hecuba has now become an arena for philosophical discussion about war and a fitting mouthpiece for someone like Vanessa Redgrave with over 40 years of radical politics behind her and for audiences and other players of our time because through Hecuba we enter the point of view of the vanquished, not the victors, of the human, not the gods, not to repeat the rhetoric of blame, but to learn resistance to the economy of sacrifice. Hecuba rejects this. She exacts wild justice, but it tilts the balance of the bloody barter gods and the ghosts of heroes demand. Hecuba weeps for her dead daughter. Then, in a remarkable piece of stagecraft, the body that is borne onto the stage, which she takes to be a Polyxena's corpse, turns out not to be her daughter's, but that of her only surviving son, Polydorus, who has been murdered and thrown into the sea by Polymester, king of Thrace, whom Hecuba counted as a friend and safe haven from Troy for her youngest child, son. Euripides' play dramatizes the double death of Hecuba's son and daughter to deepen thoughts about different forms and purposes of mortal exchange, retribution, and vengeance. For Hecuba then takes revenge. Her cruel act has received much criticism. Like Medea's murder of her children, it has carried this old woman beyond the sympathies of audiences in the past. Hecuba's final metamorphosis into a dog has been viewed as the fitting penalty for her heinous bestial degradation as a slave to the victorious Greeks and as a vicious and vengeful deceiver. However, commentators' performances and audiences are increasingly no longer swerving in their allegiance to Euripides' heroine. In Matthew Boswell's production for the RSC, Vanessa Redgrave played her as a dignified, supremely intelligent, self-aware figure throughout. I'll show you some pictures later, but we have to keep this up for the moment because of the complications. When Vanessa Redgrave grovels and prostrates herself before Odysseus, a loathsome character in this play, Redgrave conveyed her abasement as near-ironical play-acting, perfected in desperation to do anything to win her daughter's life. Even in the most acute moments of grief, Redgrave did not rave or suggest total loss of self-possession. Perhaps her queeniness did remain a touch too poised. Yet the production as a whole was directed to make us think about bloodshed, about human revenge and divine ordinances, and help us discriminate between avenging a crime and justice, between making good a hurt and the religious symbolism of a sacrificial offering. Instead of retribution in equal measure, the Old Testament law of an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, and the Olympians' justice, the Talian Hecuba meets out to her enemies differs. Luring the greedy, lying polymester by the promise of more gold hidden in the Trojan prisoner's tent, Hecuba rouses the Trojan women to attack him and kill his children. They blind him with their brooches. So to the chorus's surprise and to ours, she does not kill her son's murderer, but makes him suffer, as she has done, by losing his children. The costs of war aren't reckoned on the battlefield, but in the inner quarters of the individual's deepest attachments. In this sense, Hecuba inflicts sympathy on him as his penalty, making him weep for his loss in the perpetual darkness of his blindness, here symbolizing the end of generation and futurity, as it does for Oedipus. In Judith Mossman's book, Wild Justice, she discusses the controversies over this tragic development and the changing views of Hecuba's transformation over time. After reviewing many interesting possibilities, she concludes... Euripides wanted an embittered, confusing ending with none of the certainty and order which a theophany would have introduced. He wanted to show a world of human confusion and doubt and to allow room for argument on every issue raised in the latter part of the play. Polymester blunders grotesquely around the stage, railing against his fate 
And then, like blind Tiresias, he prophesies to Hecuba that Cassandra will die and to Agamemnon that he will be murdered, both at Clytemestra's hand, and to Hecuba herself that she will never leave Trojan territory but will be changed into a dog with fiery eyes and then climb the mast of the ship carrying her away and throw herself to her death in the sea. Hecuba's animal metamorphosis will not lead to a further transformation, as in the case of Callisto, who becomes a constellation after being turned into a bear. Hecuba doesn't earn that reprieve, and her Euripidean transformation has invited much speculation. Is it a punishment alluding to the baseness of her actions, or an embodiment of her matriarchal progenitiveness, of her ur-teamed loins, as, Ham- as Hamlet calls them? Does she become a cur, a bitch, with a glance at the cynic philosophers, whose name derives from the same word, kinos, dog, because she stands for the loss of all reason to hope and trust in humankind? Does her change of shape allude to Hecate, also dog-like, through the reverberation of her name? The Trojan Queen's metamorphoses, exploding from an extreme crisis, replaces human death by a change of form of species. In this form, she is reduced to bare life, animal, biological being, the consequence, as Giorgio Agamben discusses in his book on state violence, of expulsion from contemporary political society and the visible sign of public sovereignty over private interests. Hecuba, ending up a dog, subordinates the individual destiny and all its loves and loyalties to the real politique of military conquest and state mastery. Hecuba exults in her revenge on Polymesta. She feels no compassion for her victim, and does not, as she indeed might have done as rationally, focus her anger against the Greeks. This act of remorseless avenging cruelty on the part of the bereft queen, from whose side the playwright makes us see the unfolding events, offers a vivid example of uses of myth, as proposed by Paul Ricoeur, as I mentioned earlier. The extreme fiction gives ground for moral debate. It's provoked a fascinating discussion between Martha Nussbaum and John Kerrigan, both of whom grapple with the ethics of Hecuba's actions, and open up the play to different assessments and allocation of approval. But both are more concerned with the events themselves, the characters' motives, and the morality of the play's meaning than with the dramatic means by which the audience comes to take those aspects to heart and to feel with and weep for Hecuba, the tragic mode of sympathetic thought. This mode does not assume virtue or unassailable rightness in the object of sympathy, nor equate that feeling of sympathy with rectitude either. Mossman says as much when she writes, our emotions and reason are swung to and fro on the moral issues of the play. He offers us no easy answers. Indeed, he creates a world where easy answers are a thing of the past, and the state of flux he represents is reflected in the structure and expression of the play. Extreme violence in war and bloodthirsty rituals are perpetrated by the Greek victors through the sufferings of the Trojans on stage. The sufferers are in the foreground, and we see their experiences through word pictures. The savagery is visibly present, but not enacted visually. Merleau-Ponty calls thoughts in the mind's eye image flesh, and Euripides and the Greeks recognize the affinity of these unseen actions with artistic figments as such. Euripides sees his own dramatic writing in picture form, using ephrasis too very powerfully in Hecuba. The first time when the herald is describing the death of Polyxena on Achilles' tomb, he compares her to a marble statue and she bears her throat to the executioner's sword. Even more significantly, Hecuba herself, on her knees before Agamemnon, asks him to see her as a figure in a painting of the woes of war. Edith Hall makes the point, and it's the crucial point, that passages such as these remind the audience rather uncomfortably, that they are colluding in the theatrical process precisely by gazing on and feeling aesthetic pleasure in the enactment of sadism and anguish. Some directors, like Katie Mitchell, sometimes choose to emphasize this aspect. In the same speech later, when Hecuba continues to press her suit, she produces a fantastic simile in which she figures herself as a kind of acoustic fountain, an automaton, such as Hero of Alexandria might have contrived. I wish I had voices in my arms and lips, in my fingertips, my hair, and both my feet, contrived by Daedalus or by some god, so my entire choir could, would grasp your knees and all my many voices make their pleas. That's Tony Harrison's translation of Hecuba. This many-voiced artifact summons the work of the chorus on stage, 
a chorus of exclusively women's voices in so many of Euripides' plays? And could it also be prophesying the voices of the mass media who will disseminate pictures of Hecubas from war zones like Troy in the future? The reification that Hecuba herself performs on herself pushes the aesthetic character of visual staging further. Pleasure and picturing of pain can still powerfully cry out for pity. Or can it? The deaths take place off stage, captured by words alone. Is this a condition of catharsis? Does a different chemical reaction occur when actors simulate the violence on stage and on screen? Does mimetic enactment trigger different synapses from verbal mimesis? To answer this, in the second part, we'll look at the scene of the players in Hamlet, where Hecuba makes a brief but key appearance. So you can come up now, because we're going to soon we're going to have you, have you performing. Come, come to Hecuba, cries Hamlet to the first player, urging him on as he pours out a classical messenger speech about the fall of Troy, dripping with blood and gore. Confronted with the player's dramatic mimesis, Hamlet cannot contain himself. This comes later. What's Hecuba to him and he to Hecuba? That he should weep for her, he rails, crying out for his own inability to feel or perhaps to weep. He's been made to know his dryness, his inaction. He cannot move or be moved in more senses than one. The player delivers a huge, bloated, blood-soaked Senecan set piece, reverberating with echoes from Aeneas in Marlowe's Dido, Queen of Carthage. In famously overwrought terms, the player has described the slaughter of King, is describing the slaughter of King Priam at the fall of Troy. The scene is set for Priam's prettiest death. His killer will be Pyrrhus, the son of Achilles, bent on avenging the death of his father from an arrow shot by Paris. And here is the speech describing Pyrrhus on the rampage. Head to foot, now if he total views, horribly tricked with blood of fathers, mothers, daughters, sons, baked and impasted with the parching streets that lend a tyrannous and a damned light to their lord's murder, roasted in wrath and fire, and thus o'ersized with coagulate gore, with eyes like carbuncles, the hellish Pyrrhus, old grandsire Priam seeks. This is the point when Hamlet urges the actor to come to Hecuba, and the player does, evoking the queen's newly wretched state as she runs barefoot up and down among the flames of Troy. The player's speech, his old style, declamatory, fervid, um, bombastic theatrical writing, brings us, the audience, face to face with the, in- the invisible queen. And as we saw, the actor says how any... Sorry, we haven't had that bit. That's right. So we're going to have it. The- and as you will see, the actor will s- says how anyone who saw this scene would have railed against fate. He then switches from anyone and everyone, as imagined spectators, to the gods themselves. Who this had seen with tongue in venom steeped against fortune's state which treason had pronounced? But if the gods themselves did see her then, when she saw Pyrrhus make malicious sport in mincing with his sword her husband's limbs, the instant burst of clamour that she made unless things mortal move them not at all, would have made milk the burning eyes of heaven and passion in the gods. Thank you. Thank you very much. The, the gods become another audience, and their pity figured as milk, not tears, an association with maternity, with Hecuba's o'er-teamed loins. The speech keeps returning to the tension around movement, movement as physical blows and progress, Pyrrhus's rampage, and movement as emotion, as feeling. It solicits empathy, strives strenuously to arouse pity and fear in the, according to the very exact principles of classical tragedy, but it also draws attention to the difficulty of doing this. Just as the, pair, the players follow an old-fashioned way of acting, so they keep to classical convention and describe the action rather than perform it on stage. Hamlet's exchanges with the player king test the very heart of the question about dramatic representation. He is asking the group, the the players, to modernize their style, while one murder after another will leave his own tragedy strewn with corpses killed in plain view. Shakespeare, through his tragic hero, is testing the value of the old versus the new, of classical decorum 
versus Jacobean spectacle. But he does not pursue his answer through applying aesthetic or ethical criteria. His values are emotional. Hamlet wants to be moved, to feel, to resemble the first player in his ability to become involved and not find himself on the side of the unmoved, like Pyrrhus, the gods, and fate, who do not act, are not moved, but remain frozen, dried up, like Hamlet. A complex set of nested boxes gives us many different levels of spectators and different variations on mimesis in this scene. Inside the story, the gods and fate are watching the catastrophe at Troy, and the surviving horror-struck Trojan women are looking on helpless, Hecuba screaming as she witnesses the destruction. Then, listening to the player reciting his huge speech, Hamlet and Polonius et al. are on stage. After nearly 50 lines, Polonius notes that the first player has turned his colour and has tears in his eyes. Prithee, no more. The first player pales and weeps as he thinks of Hecuba. And though the action lies not at one but several removes, his speech comes from a play that has never been performed, so Hamlet says in a famous phrase, "'Twas caviar to the general." And although we are dropped into this sequence of frames within frames, a representation of a play never performed, and as it happens, not to be performed either, of a description of an action, declaimed in a mode of stagey, overheated, and hence alienating histrionics, at all these removes, Shakespeare through Hamlet is still demonstrating the greater power of words, or of art and performance and oratory, to move the soul, to ravel up time, and take us face to face with the distant events recounted. The playwright even risks the player's absurd prolixity, which some critics take as burlesque, and shows up its redundancy. Yet still he proves that the verbal stimulus to sympathy can press to the mark when nothing is seen or staged, when nothing described is performed. The first player splits. The man weeps at what the actor is declaiming as if he were a member of his own audience. Here, as elsewhere in The Winter's Tale and in The Tempest, Shakespeare is wondering what to do with this power of imaginative identification to start up springs of sympathy as opposed to real life and real action that leave Hamlet unmoved. This is the very nub of the issue about mimesis, how to join representation to act. Which possesses more effective power to move to pity and fear, imitation as direct representation or imitation in word pictures, phantasmata? Hecuba herself is not on stage, neither in the original text nor here in Hamlet. The scene and the player's weeping and Hamlet's anguish asks us to make up the pictures in our mind's eye in response to the words of the player. When the speech has been cut short by Polonius, Hamlet takes the first player aside and asks him to play the murder of Gonzaga. He will force the resemblance between life and its representation to expose Claudius's crime because theatre, he knows, can move events in the real world. The circles of watchers and listeners who remain immobilised by the first player's speech, will be engaged, provoked to such a degree that action ensues. Imitation will leap off the stage into the auditorium when Claudius erupts in furious recognition of the accusation the dumb show is making against him and calls for lights. This king loses himself to the point of forgetting that he is just watching a play about a shadow king, and in this sense he behaves in the very opposite way to the player. Hamlet is stuck in between, knowing he should also be moved by recognition the speech has described the butchery of a father figure to end all father figures, after all. So, in mirror fashion, three plays, The Death of Priam, The Murder of Gonzago, and Hamlet itself, perform variations on one another's plot and press the argument for drama's potential to release action. Above all, Hecuba, as a grieving and vengeful mother, offers Hamlet a stark contrast to Gertrude, who, unlike the Trojan queen, does not rage at her husband's death, but has allied herself with his murderer. So he marvels at the player's emotion, but he also grieves and rails at the difference between his own mother, who does not mourn his father, and this mother, who is so stricken at the murder of her husband. And it's after this that he cudgels himself in his famous soliloquy. Um, this is what we're going to play now. Um, and um, it begins, Now I am alone. And you'll see at the beginning of this version by David Tennant that he actually pulls out a bug from because it's updated to contemporary setting. He pulls a bug, a, spy, a spying bug, out of the ceiling before he starts. Um, when I first Googled this to get the clip, um, I put in "Now I am alone," and um, I got a number of very pretty girls. 
before before I got to before I got to um, before I got to David Tennant. that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that from her workings all his visage wand. Tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit. And all for nothing, for Hecuba. What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba, that he should weep for her? What would he do? Had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have, he would drown the stage in tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free. Confound the ignorant and amaze indeed the... dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing. I'll leave it because it's jumping. Um, and actually, he's not my favourite Hamlet, I have to say. But um, it proved, proved surprisingly difficult. Um, in, I'll be able to go to the PowerPoint. I think I need Phil, because the PowerPoint has vanished from the um, bottom line. Oh, wait a minute, is this it? Here we are. No, it's not. Uh, sorry, I need you to get it up because it's not coming back on the screen. Um, so basically, um, the, 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 the famous speech, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I, ends with a couplet, um, the play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. And the key stratagem that, thanks you so much, that Shakespeare employs here and which Hamlet intends to use is this. We are invited to feel with Hecuba, not to feel, on our own, not to feel on our own account the horrors of Troy. Through her, we should be able to weep. She should act as the conductor of the energy of empathy that Hamlet yearns for, the motor of action. This is a very common device in fiction, and indeed in cinema. Hitchcock knew that in order to inspire terror in the audience, you do not show the object of terror, but the terrified face of the person witnessing it. Ch Janet Lee in Psycho, eyes bulging, shrieking. When we first see Hecuba weeping, our tears follow. To put it another way, she acts as a repoussoir in a landscape painting. By occupying the foreground, she gives depth and proportion and focus to everything taking place around her, the percipient acting on our behalf. Because we are looking with Hecuba, what she is looking at can take on different forms. We fill in the absent objects of her grief according to our own experiences of loss and fear. In widening rings around the Euripidean, Euripidean tragedies, Hecuba and the Trojan women, the matter of Troy continues to contest, contest the cult of war. In the same way as Seamus Heaney's The Cure at Troy, in which the Irish poet revisioned Philoctetes as a powerful allegory of the troubles in Northern Ireland, so the Rory Sea production of Hecuba alluded to the current conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Israel, Palestine, costuming the captive the captive women in the indigos, purples, and maroons of Middle Eastern drapery, um, and filling the program with the haunting photographs of the Iranian-born Shirin Neshat. Here is Vanessa Redgrave um, in the title role. This is an example from Katie Mitchell's opera direction of Jephthah, where the sort of sadomasochistic elements are, were more underlined than usual in Greek tragedy. 
That's why we're going back a bit. But then on to so here we have the chorus with the body of Polydorus in these kind of uh, Middle Eastern costumes of some kind. And here, this, this is Niran Shirin Neshat's an extraordinary enigmatic photographs, which were in the program, um, un, unexplained. They were just present. Um, this um, updating is not, a, is not an entirely new pulse beating, as many of you know. In the 50s, Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a free version of the Trojan Women and said he was inspired to take up the play by the Algerian War, identifying the Greek expedition against Troy with the colonial wars of his time. The Trojan Women, Sartre wrote, has a precise political significance when it was first produced. It was an explicit condemnation of war in general and of imperial expeditions in particular. We know today, he wrote, and this is in the 50s, that war would trigger off an atomic war in which there would be neither victor nor vanquished. This play demonstrates this fact precisely, that war is a defeat to humanity. The Greeks destroy Troy, but they receive no benefit from their victory. Ronald Duncan, the American poet, translated Sartre's drama in the 60s into English and pointed out parallels with the Vietnam conflict. The symbol of Troy has absorbed different meanings over the millennia, changing shape and power to the irregular pulse of punitive and often vengeful military enterprises. For this reason, through the tragic Queen Hecuba, it now speaks to us with renewed vigor and urgency. And her figure has haunted English theatre and the page, um, never more so than now, during the extended period of conflict in the Middle East, offering a geographical as well as a moral coincidence. Several poets have recently reworked the Trojan women in Hecuba, translating and revisioning them with contemporary conditions pointedly in mind. Similarly, Helen, a later play also by Euripides, and a curious romance which also revisits the fall of Troy and its aftershocks, was performed last year at the Globe in London in a pacey comic version by Frank McGuinness. There's Penny Downey in the role of Helen. These plays draw on a dense, elusive cluster of mythological plots and characters. They place Hecuba in an echo-chamber where her role as the Queen of Troy and mother of the destroyed Trojan house resonates with other war widows, orphaned mothers, and deposed and massacred indigenous rulers. Tony Harrison provided the translation for the production in which Vanessa Redgrave took the title role. His free rendering is fierce and minimalist, kind of sandpaper and flint with some marvellous elegiac choruses in which the women speak as one in the first person. When the chorus curses Helen for bringing about the sack of Troy, he willfully angles the Greek verses to the fallout from our current different wars. I pray as a small revenge for all our dead and for Troy's burning, Helen ends up as a refugee. In the same year, Katie Mitchell directed the Trojan Women at the National Theatre in a translation by Don Taylor, and here you see Kate Duchesne, who's one of Katie Mitchell's troop, um, band of actresses in the title role, in the role of Hecuba. And she, he, she set the ruins of Troy in a Berlin bunker, a direct reference to the recent hit film about Hitler's last days, Downfall. Hecuba here, shut up with her daughters, attempted to keep up her dignity by attending to her lipstick and powder compact. The production also preserved the action of the Greek chorus in the form of dances and palm court music. Mitchell likes to sharpen the tragic irony through a deliberate bathos, trivial, trivial feminine customs adopted as defensive mimicry by great women who have been reduced to slaves or destined to die. Most recently of all, the dramatist and poet Glyn Maxwell has interleaved the two European tragedies into a two-act play, which he has called Blind Eye Crying. The phrase is first spoken in his play by the prophetess Cassandra, and when she sees her mother's revenge, the blinding of her brother's killer. But the echoing of the image on the lips of the young visionary evokes as well the pitiless mouth of the god Apollo, who speaks through her. The gift of prophecy, by cancelling linear time, also overlooks cause and effect. Cassandra can see things happening now that have taken place in the past or will take place in the future. This temporality characterizes the shine in Nietzschean terms, the illusion of drama itself. Troy is happening for us on stage, where events unfold now are recounted once in once and future time, sorry, are recounting once and future time as well. Maxwell's version has been commissioned by the Archive of Greek and Roman Drama in Performance, um, local, 
heroes, and will be performed here soon. Um, I can't wait to see it on stage, but in the meantime, I've been lucky enough to read it in draft. So I'm not going to quote, because Glyn Maxwell hasn't quite finished it, but I'm going to give you an account of it. Glyn Maxwell has been moved by the classical plays to create a scorching drama of his own, which derives its energy of passion and imagery from the Greek originals, but translates them in the strongest sense of the term, carrying them fully into contemporary significance on the surge of his language. Rough music, sown with curse words and colloquialisms, and strongly individualised speech for the different characters. Agamemnon is coarse, Cassandra full of echoes of Ophelia, of Edgar's, Edgar as poor Tom, and Hecuba takes refuge in dignified dream denials, conjuring images of redress and hope. Every woman in the tragedy occupies a different relation to what Wallace Stevens called the bread of faithful speech. Hecuba tells comforting lies, consolatory fables, and she believes Troy is not burning. They will be rescued by her last surviving son. He will lead an uprising of the islands against the Greek invaders. Polyxena, who will be sacrificed on his tomb, on Ecclesiastes' tomb, weaves more lies, but in full consciousness, in order to spare her mother. And Cassandra speaks truth, the only character who does, but she can't be heard or understood. Intelligibility is at stake throughout. It stands for home, the home that was Troy before the war, the home that is now the corral enclosed by walls in which the women are shut up, unable even to see what is happening outside in the city. Maxwell has developed a highly expressive use of irregular iambic pentameter, chopped and suffering to repetition, chiasmas, and other syncopated devices, and he uses this textured poetry to press out a match between the collapse of language and the tragedy of the family of Priam and the women of Troy. Paul Hammond, in a new book, The Strangers of Tragedy, emphasizes this, that estrangement from familiar surroundings and familiar perspective informs the tragic protagonist's predicament. He is focusing on Hercules and his madness, but his comments illuminate the Trojan women's enforced separation from all that was home. Hammond introduces the Freudian concept of Unheimlich to make his point, but he returns Unheimlich to its root meaning, unhomely, rather than uncanny. The tragedy of Hecuba and her daughters is to be unhomed, unhoused from Troy, from the past and from their own ways, including language. Language no longer joins the protagonist to his social milieu, writes Hammond. He speaks his own idiolect, uses the concepts of his homeland to build an alien world. The Trojan Women by Euripides includes a dramatic and vituperative encounter between Helen and Hecuba, who treats her daughter-in-law with furious contempt and blames her entirely for the war. Helen, for her part, defends herself with spirit, blaming Paris, Aphrodite, her own beauty, the Trojans. Are her speeches simply self-vindicating cunning, or is she, as she asks, to be pitied as a plaything of the gods? Menelaus comes looking for her in the burning ruins in order to kill her, but her ma- Helen seduces her all over again, him all over again. The character of Helen has inspired Glyn Maxwell to remarkable reimagining of her powers. In his free version, she's been hardened by the hatred of the Trojans, and she speaks with bitter cynicism about love and its consequences to Hecuba and her daughters. But in the encounter with Menelaus, she doesn't reveal her beauty letting fall her robe, as in the classical sources, but casts her spell on him through song. Maxwell's Helen remembers her enigmatic role in the Odyssey, when Helen drops a filter in the wine cup to lull the company, and then recalls how she circled the Trojan horse and attempted to deceive the Greeks who were hiding inside and tempt them out to show themselves. By imperson- uh, she's impersonating the voices of their wives. Maxwell enhances Helen's witchiness, as in, his, in this play. She winds her husband into a charm, which is a ditty, a simple nursery-like round. His version has dispensed with the chorus as such, but their function their voices survive in the uses of chant, which punctuates the play as the sign of a common bond. The legacy of Troy is one of singing and dancing. Hecuba, above all, hankers for that world of civility and grace, or culture, where she used to lead the dancing. The world of language, not spectacle, marks out the world of women, and the songs have a thaumaturgic purpose. The women, including Helen, weave a charm of rhyming couplets as they dance. Their dance symbolizes the life and culture of Troy that was, but it keeps some kind of force in the repetition, the female incantation. Their challenge to death takes the form of a song, their ordinary responses settling into a pattern, a ritualized performance that mirrors drama as it is taking place. In this way, blind eye crying gives art and language a prime role of writing resistance into the memory of defeat. But nursery language and women's music can't put up a strong enough fight. 
And at the end of Maxwell's version, Hecuba is muted. All she can do is sob. This is the way he does her metamorphosis into a bitch. Her animal state robs her of all words, one of the conditions of bare life in the 21st century. So now, in conclusion, we can return to the main theme, the uses of war. I believe the tragedy of the Trojan War, as treated by Euripides, exercises its powerful appeal on writers, directors, and audiences today for two principal reasons. First, it does not present the protagonists as role models. Mimesis here does not aim at inspiring imitation, but contemplation. As Vernon comments, the hero, the tragic hero, is not a pattern of behavior, but an object of debate. The Trojan War plays are about the pity of war, the wreckage of human lives and culture, and the pathos of the soul-surviving Trojans. The eventual horror carried out by Hecuba presents us with her response to unequivocal wrongs done to her and the limitless sufferings she has undergone. It is because this drama is able to enter so fully into the Trojans' pitiful state and and into Hecuba's despoliation as a fallen queen, a widow, and a bereaved mother that Nietzsche was right when he railed against Euripides' failure to submit to the ineluctable divine order of fate. This tragedy demands that we make up our minds, not pin it on fate or the gods. Sartre, in his comments on the Trojan women, praises Euripides precisely for this revolt against the divine order and the ensuing moral order. From being a mere ritual, he wrote, tragedy became a vehicle for thought. Secondly, and this is my final point, the representation of violence through word pictures rather than stage enactment can avoid the problems that have arisen from cinematic realism. Tragic violence offstage confronts without equivocation the depth of horror that warfare brings with it, but succeeds in in inspiring the emotions of pity and fear of aligning aesthetic response with ethical principles. By contrast, sensations of excitement and thrills produced by live-action death and violence all too often make us collusive with the violence represented. I think it's possible to make a historical contrast between the tragic mode of empathy and apocalyptic plots and their concept of vengeance, which currently dominate agonistic discourse in the public forum. John Kerrigan's book about revenge was published in 1996 and carries the subtitle Aeschylus to Armageddon. But some distinctions in the changing concept of vengeance over time have become more urgent since then. The flow of sympathy runs differently in apocalyptic literature, and his apocalypse, with its dream of cleansing, of renewal through violence, that dominates the revengeful dramatic imagination today. The representation of mayhem rouses empathy in a contrary direction, with the victor. The ethics of retribution receive a very different treatment, and the central axiom of redemptive sacrifice retains all its religious value and magic efficacy. Troy turns into Babylon, if you like. Its destruction is longed for and promised, and when it comes, a cause for exaltation. We are excited, not to pity and fear, but to thrills of pleasure and quasi-sexual shudders of terror. The problem of apocalyptic today arises, however, less from its traditional interest in the vengeance of the righteous than from the new powers of visual illusion created by contemporary technologies. They can actualize ecrosis with literal exactitude, and new possibilities are constantly offered by both armaments and film. Photographic communication technologies are mobilized to produce not pity and fear, but triumphant self-glorification and an apocalyptic of disassociation. If you think of the shocking photographs of prisoners from Abu Ghraib and elsewhere, they came in a variety of levels of veracity. Some were staged for the camera as tableau vivant of punishments and degradation. Some of them were posed to intimidate and threaten. Some of them were faked back in the UK to recall what had happened. Some were indeed neither staged nor imitations. Several could not be easily categorized. Real atrocities and torture were play-acted, as if for a bondage film. Such images were then transmitted by pornography's new native element, the Internet, to amuse the folks back home. Perpetrators defended themselves, saying they were only posing. It wasn't for real. One cause for this dissociation lies with the uses of cinematic realism. For a start, with all its dazzling computer-generated imagery, cinematic reality doesn't include understanding of suffering, neither of bodies or an enfleshed fragility, nor of human beings and psychological vulnerability. The production values of contemporary films strive for authenticity in communicating a visceral experience of ordeals and pain. Whereas when we read about pain, suffering and death, we can empathize and the victim's existence coheres with the entire imaginative projection of the text. In films of carnage, the scenes cannot be veridical, 
the image turns everything into a game of let's pretend. Happily, public revulsion against the Iraqi material showed that affectless disassociation has not altogether triumphed. And of course, these, the popularity of these tragedies also shows that people resist this. The photographs made a difference, and the disavowals did not find acceptance. The outcry also revealed that images have huge power to shock us into thought. But though the photographs stirred widespread dismay and shame, their making also conveys how the consumption of fantasy as realistic spectacle can denature us. They reveal the disappearance of act into image. In these trophy pictures, the subject's existence as a person vaporizes. He becomes a phantasmic enemy, his degradation a symbolic ritual designed to deliver pleasure and triumph to the viewer. When we read about bloodshed or listen to a messenger speech and form phantasmata in our minds, the bloodshed is no fraud, since it belongs of a piece to the whole imaginative projection of tragedy. But contemporary apocalyptic asks us to sit tight and watch and thrill to the violence because we know it is not really happening. Even during the most exciting scenes of torment and damage, something twists and directs the audience towards a state of overwrought sensation, jazzed up with a sensory sugary rush, as Anthony Lane recently talked about the film Kick-Ass. How very profoundly tragic representation differs from the apocalyptic can be felt from this lament of the chorus in Hecuba on the fall of Troy, as rendered by Tony Harrison. Ilion, O my city, no longer will you be named among the cities never taken. Lost in the Greek storm cloud, speared, sacked, your wreath of flowers hacked from your head. Sorry, fouled in the smoke and the ash train. Sad city, I shall not walk in you again. I was just doing my hair for the night, and the golden mirror showed me my own face there, calm and still with delight, ready for love and sleep. And then the noise broke out in the streets, and a cry never heard before. Greeks, Greeks, it is ours, they said. Finish the war, break, kill, burn, end it, and we can go home. Out of my bed, half-naked like any Dorian girl, I ran for the sanctuary of Artemis's shrine. No use, for I never made it. I saw my husband die. They have taken me over the sea. I look back at my city. Either we admit artifice and stage unreality honestly and keep faith with the laws of time and the flesh, confront the reality of pain and suffering, or we risk deepening the current disregard for the consequences of violence, war, and exclusion. The current recourse to apocalyptic spectacle denatures rep tragic representations and their power to move us to weep for Hecuba. Thank you.